Hello and welcome to The Premise. Bienvenidos, mi amigos. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise. So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record. <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, a shot, you know, whatever. And you do you. You do you. We'll do us. No judgment here. We'll do us. Right, ladies, Rosie, Eve, I'm going to try and hold up our books at the same time. Beautiful covers. I love both of these covers. They're, They're just gorgeous. Together as well. They really do. Yeah, I carried around, carried them around with me a lot. I have a picture of me pretending like I'm reading both books at the same time. <laughs> I have, beautiful, to, I have beautiful. to say, you guys in the States do just such beautiful jackets compared to what we do. I shouldn't well, say that really, but your jackets are so beautiful. Although, Eve, yours is the same in the UK, isn't it? it yeah, this time actually it's the same cover, which is lovely to have. Oh, is it? I think it's just such, yeah, it's the same cover in the UK, more or less. Um, so it's nice to have that consistency, actually. First mm -hmm. time I think mm -hmm. it's happened. I always find it fascinating when, you know, to compare the two books. And Rosie, do you have the UK version with you? Can you show, show, show us what it looks like? Of course, it's right there. It be more different. Oh, really? Yeah, seriously, that doesn't speak to me as much as this one does this well, one yeah. i like no. the yellow i like the yellow but i definitely like this one i feel this one has more of the feeling of the book which really sweeps you away on this journey so yeah in the uk a hardback has to do quite a different job to the job that it has to do in the states like that's your big moment with a hardback in in the states whereas in the uk your big moment is normally when it comes out in paperback so interesting it's been my experience yeah. that my paperbacks have been sort of more emotional mm. than the hardbacks, which have been a bit more sort of grabby and shouty yeah do you think that people judge a book by its cover as much in the uk as they do in the united states yes <laughs> yeah okay. i think so i think it's you can't, <laughs> can't, you can't really it. escape it can you and it, whether you're in a bookstore really. or whether it's being you know posted on instagram or something you, you've got to have a well you really want to have a great cover so it's got to grab you oh what's that it's got to grab that, you oh, yeah. yeah yeah and i felt that way about both your books well let me introduce you both so eve chase the author of birdcage eve chase is the internationally best-selling author of black rabbit hall the wildling sisters and the daughters of foxcoat manor she lives in oxford england with her husband and three children and again this beautiful book which i can't wait to talk about and rosie walsh the love of my life Rosie Walsh lived and traveled all over the world, working as the documentary producer and writer. Ghosted, her American debut, was a New York Times bestseller and has sold more than one million copies worldwide. The Love of My Life is her second novel. She lives in Devon, England, with her partner and two children. Did I pronounce Devon right? You did. Yeah. How, how, how did you think you should pronounce it? I, Devin, but my husband warned me. He's like, okay, there's a lot of British names. Make sure you pron pronounce them right. And I was like, oh God. So now, now I'm nervous about it, I guess. <laughs> well, British place names are impossible. I, I, I don't think anyone laughs at foreigners when they when they get place names wrong because even, even I would, they're ridiculous. The spellings are, are just appalling and unforgivable. <laughs> yes. Devin's actually pretty easy. You know, the first thing I want to ask both of you is place so for both of these books there's a house that's really important to the story and to the characters and there it's almost a character in and of itself and eve i'd like to start with you can we talk about the house in the birdcage and the significance it has to your story and where did it come from the idea i mean well, the idea of the actual house, I mean, it doesn't exist in real life, but there are real houses on that stretch of Cornwall, um, which is the Atlantic coast. So that's the really wild coast of Cornwall where you get these, you know, huge waves, big weather, 
yeah. and it's still yeah I mean it's still really remote I mean it's the, the novel set between 1999 and 2019 and even in 2019 you've got you know, the helpful thing for a novelist and sort of dodgy Wi-Fi in certain areas, certainly dodgy phone signal. So it's a fantastic sort of crucible in a way that you can take your characters there, plonk them on a cliff top in the sort of wild weather and you get, they can't easily escape. So that that's a big thing. But also it's just it's an area I know really, really quite well. And it's it's so beautiful and it's had a long history of um, attracting artists and writers um, in that area from Virginia Woolf to Barbara Hepworth. And so it's so rich. And, you know, the, one of the main characters in my book is an artist. So it made sense on that level, on that narrative level to situate it there too. Did the story or the place come first? Um, they kind of came together, actually. I mean, I knew I was mm. going to, I really wanted to write about that coast of Cornwall. Because in my first book, Black Rabbit Hall, I did the other coast, the south coast, and it's much gentler, much milder, it's much more floral, and you can, you know, mm. you, you don't sort of take your life in your hands when you go out for a winter sea swim in the same way, whereas if you, you do, on the, or, you know, if you don't really know what you're doing, you, you can do on, on, on the west coast, um, and so, yes, it kind of, I needed it to be there, it, it couldn't have really been set anywhere else, I don't think. There's that this idea <laughs> of... Yeah, there's this idea of stormy weather, you know, there's stormy weather inside the house. Yes. And I can't wait to dig into these characters and their individual storms. But I want to talk about the inside the house. So we're 1999 to 2019. So there's a 20 year gap. And but we're in a house that hasn't changed since 1999. Yeah. The stuff and the stuff. <laughs> the stuff really matters and like I became attached yeah. to the stuff the idea that it might change was like emotional for me and and of course the the lovely thing is when I started reading Rosie's book the love of my life she has kind of a similar thing with this house and this stuff that means something to these characters as they're finding their way so and we'll get to you in in just a minute Rosie but Eve talk about this house and the significance of time and the shift in time and how we had to be in to be in that place did you always yeah. have the idea that the house would be the same or did that change in the writing well i think <laughs> because it was their grandparents and especially their grandmother's house and so she was a big collector of bird cages i mean and the girls when they were younger were just like so they're three half sisters just very quickly for anyone who hasn't read it and they have different mothers and they share a father so their fathers are sort of is a sort of an artist um, and he's old, getting getting old in, in the 2019. But so, and his daughters are the result of um, his ex-wife, his ex-mistress, and the life model. So there's a lot of kind of conflict in the house. And they, when they were girls, it was the only place they would actually get to be together. So it was a really special place. They would go there every summer, and they, they would meet their sisters because they had other lives. And yeah, and I really enjoyed doing the house because it was kind of in a way it was like everyone's granny's house, you know, with the kind of the cooking timer that you had to slap to make it work and the sort of slightly kind of greasy recipe books and the old pine kitchen and I just I couldn't really bear to change it and I think in a way that you, you I needed the girls to get the girls and when they come back as women in their 30s and they've got big jobs and families so they need to you know that they need to be able to step into that and be instantly whooshed back <laughs> in a sort of time machine back to the past um yes. so all their minimal fittings and sleek london apartments all fall away and they're back in this you know very dated pine kitchen surrounded by crockery and but their grandmother's no longer there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely lovely rosie so in the love of my life there's a similar house, a childhood home that, that hasn't changed much as well. So talk to us about the, the setting, where it's placed and the house itself. It's funny, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that similarity between our books. And it, one of the things that I love most about Eve's books are the sort of almost personified houses um, yeah. Yeah. that are as central to the plot and the characterization as, as the characters themselves. Um, so the house, uh, the house in, in my novel is um, a tiny little terraced house um, in Hampstead Village in London. Um, Hampstead Village is, I, I used to live in London and um, I had some wonderful times there, the very best of times and the very worst of times. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't go back there for all the tea in China, however. 
except if I could live in Hampstead Village. Like nobody can live in Hampstead <laughs> Village unless they're a millionaire. However, somehow my two characters who are very much not millionaires um, live in this house that um, the main character, Emma, um, inherited from her, gran from her grandmother um, when her grandmother died, uh, I think it's about 15 years before the novel began. And it's a tiny, tiny little cramped um, Georgian terraced house. And Georgian houses, Georgian townhouses in the UK are known for having these big, beautiful windows, um, sort of sliding sash windows. But in, you know, in a smaller, in a much smaller house, the windows are really small. And Emma and Leo's house is um, gradually being eaten alive by um, ivy and other sort of creepers um, that, 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 that are growing up it. And Emma's grandmother was a hoarder. Um, a sort of semi-functional hoarder, you know, not sort of mould growing out of the carpet, but, you know, <laughs> she, had, she had far too much stuff. And so um, they are living in this house, but Emma, who suffered a lot of trauma, um, is like many people with these sort of hoarding tendencies, like her grandmother. She's lost so many things in her life that she, she can't really throw anything away. So her poor husband, Leo, is just living in in a house where they can't even get in the dining room because it's just stacked sort of this high with sheet, uh, her grandmother's old sheet music. Um, and I had some wonderful times wandering around um, Hampstead Village, sort of taking pictures of houses. And I made these houses all sort of mate with each other <laughs> to form this one house that, you know, is a sort of love child of about three or four different tiny cottages in Hampstead Village. I, I sort of feel quite sad that it doesn't exist, really, because I'd really like to go there and you know, have a couple of It does feel like you can, you can walk around it, but I think that, yeah. that house, it absolutely feel like it, it feels like it exists and you can walk in and pass yeah. the stacks of books and everything else. Yeah, it'd be nice. You know, yeah. you talked about the ivy over, kind of overtaking. Was that sort of a metaphor for what was happening to the lies in Emma's past? Hmm. That's a really lovely question. And it's one of those questions where I always find myself in a, in a dilemma. Do I say, yeah, yeah, that was my turn. Definitely. <laughs> I make myself um, sort of really considered and intelligent or do I tell the truth, which is that it wasn't something that I even considered until I'd finished writing it either. I often hear writers talking about sort of how they wanted to work with a theme or a sort of, you know, an idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I really admire them, but that's not how it works for me. I write a story. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I layer just, it and layer it and layer it using my gut and then at the end I can sort of critically analyze it and think oh yes there's a really strong theme of uh you know agency and story here <laughs> never <laughs> my intention at the time you know I was reading on writing by Stephen King recently I don't know if either of you have read it both of you have yeah I love and he that. talks about such a such a good book but he talks about how his writing process is similar rosie he says it's like he there's a fossil and he has to unearth that fossil and he has no idea like plot would be like going at it with a jackhammer but he has to go at it with you know a toothbrush and pick it out and then it, the story he just follows the story and in the end he's like oh there's a theme or this works and maybe i'll pull that out a little more maybe i will read it i'm I've never done any creative writing courses or lectures or, or even read books. Um, I have various reasons, it just the idea of it terrifies me. And I've always wanted to read on writing, but um, been too afraid to because I know myself and I know that I'll then become obsessed with beats and scenes and structural mm. things. Yeah, but he, his, his one's almost the antidote of that because he doesn't, okay. really, he doesn't yeah, because he doesn't outline. So he really is seated. Yeah, he's going yeah. into a dark tunnel with just his lights on, you know, and that's yeah. the extraordinary, the extraordinary thing about that book. So it is definitely worth reading. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I know totally know what you mean about the ones with the with the, all the beats and the, at this point, this is like, oh gosh. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you, you you do have to you do have to follow your instinct, I think, when you're telling a story, and you kind of know it's a sort of rhythm, isn't it? You get to a point where it's like, okay, you need to change point of view or change tempo and do you have a method because your your novels are so seamless it's really <laughs> well you know no but it, it's That's really simple. what's interesting about people who've studied creative writing people who haven't is that the end result is always the same hopefully if it's a good novel it's going to be really compelling and yeah. things will happen and they'll get dramatic and then they'll calm down again 
Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really fascinated because, you know, if I read a novel, I can't, I can't tell if the person's, you know, done their beats and their midpoint twist or whatever. Yeah. So do you, do you have a method? Um, I I loosely sort of outline as and I kind of know I know the characters and I know the characters backstory and I know what, mm. how it's going to end but I, I I write quite instinctively but I edit and rewrite a huge amount and so I think a lot for me a lot of the you know if it hopefully look at the end if it looks seamless at all it's because I've sort of chipped away with it you know with a with a pickaxe rather than a, a gentle <laughs> brush actually and I'm quite I'm quite you know quite brutal with my red pen and I just take out anything that doesn't doesn't add something or move it forward or enrich it in some way. But so that's I, the I editing. Probably thirty thousand words. Yeah, you're you're talking about the editing piece. So, like, when you're writing, do you go back and edit, or do you allow yourself to just let it flow and see where it's going to go? I uh, well, I edit as I go. So I I, ed, I edit the previous day's writing, and then I move, and that sort of helps me get into the groove for that day's writing. I find it quite hard just to start afresh every day. I think. And um, yeah. so, it, but I, I have, I, I do try, I have tried, I aspire to be an out, a real detailed outliner because I think it must be not easier, but quite reassuring having that, you know, for, you know, that skeleton by which you go, well, I don't know what to write now. Well, oh, but I know <laughs> it is on the, on the outline. Well, yeah. I know, I know, I think it's Sophie Hanna, who's a crime writer. She writes a sort of 40,000 word outline for her books, you know, and then it, so it's almost when she, that's the main bit of work and then she will go and flesh it out. Hmm. That's not how I write. Hmm. No, there's no, there's no right way though, is it? Do you think, Rosie? You kind of get there, however you get there. I don't think there's a right way, but I think there are wrong ways, and I think I definitely write in the, <laughs> the wrong way. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't just edit the day before's writing. You know, I will keep going until it's perfect, and that's of course such a waste of time because I wrote uh, four books pseudonymously before I wrote the love of my life and, and ghosted and um you know with those books you know I, I have edited them fairly heavily but that was that whereas with both of these I've lost tens and tens of thousands of words um and that yeah. that that makes the process of editing while writing utterly pointless and painful particularly when yeah. I wrote the love of my life my second one you know I knew that I knew that I was going to end up trashing almost half of it didn't stop me <laughs> but is that part of the process though like to get to the right character or the right door you have to open some doors that maybe that's the wrong door but you still have to open them to get to the right door I mean it, it might be and actually what I've done this what I've done for this next book that I'm going to start writing in September is to hire a writing coach and not a creative mm. writing coach because as I said that whole thing scares me and I also I already have a sort of feedback process with my writing partner but uh, she, she's going to be a sort of getting my bum on the seat, uh, helping me with my confidence, helping me carve out time because I've got two really young children mm. and um, helping stop me wasting months of my life editing work that will never see the mm. light of day. So mm. I sort of think with the, you know, sin significantly enhanced accountability that I'm going to be subject yeah. to, I will hopefully manage to put some distance between me and this practice of editing pointlessly I think that with every book you one tries to do it slightly differently don't you think and that you kind of think well that didn't work last time or I wasted loads of time doing this and therefore I'm going to try this but I I don't know so I I think you can keep keep learning but I, I also think there's an element of you always sort of find a different route there and it's still a route mm. um, and sometimes it, it just takes in a slightly different kind of view but I mean, I I really really want to write a completely outline novel. One that's one of that's on my list of ambitions. So your bucket list. <laughs> when you were grown yeah, up, definitely. Yes, exactly. When you're a grown up, yeah. <laughs> when I'm a real writer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly that. Tell me about your process, Eve. Do you wake up every morning? Are you very strict about where you write and when you write and how long you write? How does how does your day look like? A, a typical writing day. Well, when I'm actually in the novel, so I I wrote that quite close to it being published over here, and I wrote it over lockdown, and I I found that writing over lockdown, you know, in my shed with three teenagers sort of knocking around the house for half the needing homeschooling and all the issues that came with that. I found mm. it a really intense period and, and, and difficult. It had a strain to it, you know, that that thankfully it doesn't really anymore. Um, mm. 
And so I kind of, when, when I filed that and it finally went, I did have to take a big sort of deep breath and kind of recharge and really think about what I wanted to write next and um, watch loads of movies. And, that, and that's exactly what I've done. But I now know, you know, what I'm going to do. And um, so, so it's that kind of jumping off point, that resistance to getting in the pool, if you the cold water of the pool. But I, and once I'm in that, then I'm off, you know, and I will, mm-hmm. I have... I know my characters and I'll, and, and I'll sit down after breakfast and I'll write until the kids come home and then I'll break and I'll go for a run or go to a yoga class and take the dog out and do all the things that need to be done and put the laundry on. And I just try and <laughs> make it work because, I, you know, there's people around in the house all the time. I've got four teenagers here at the moment. So it's just Man. like, yeah. <laughs> um, but then, but it's easy. Four teenagers are actually easier than um rosy situation with two younger ones i think because they the, the teenagers actually don't really want me i'm like i'm out of my shed they're like, oh. <laughs> and they're like we don't care that's a good point rosie what about you what does a writing day look like for you um <laughs> so i had this whole section of my previous website where i talked about how i wrote and i had to remove the entire thing once i had children <laughs> <laughs> it's all about having structure and boundaries and you know, time to chunks of this and no distractions and you know having some breathing space between you know starting your day and sitting down at your desk and not trying to just run from one thing and arrive at your desk and just create and um yeah I had to delete that entire section of my website because um I didn't adhere to a single thing I mean, it's stuff that I thought, you know, and, and I never used to understand why most of my writing friends would go on retreats. It's like, you know, mm. they, just, they just need some more discipline. I had yeah. no idea. So, I mean, I can tell you what my method used to be, which involved the Pomodoro technique. Um, mm. And if anyone watching this now or, or in the future is uh, curious to know that what, what that is, look it up, spend a Pomodoro's worth of time, which is 25 minutes, just having a look through the website. There is an accompanying book which explains it in detail and people can sort of describe it in quite a reductive way, which is, oh yeah, that's it. That thing where you work for 25 minutes and then you rest for five minutes and then you work for 25. I mean, that's what it looks like, but there's so much more to it than that. And I, I used to do that. And I would always go for a walk in the middle of it. And I would do no more than eight Pomodoros, which means four hours work, you know, in total for the day. And, and it, it was just brilliant. It was really freeing. I got loads done. And I, I that, my life just doesn't look like that uh, yet. Um, my youngest is, has just turned two. So um, in two and a bit years time, she will be in school. And then, then I can answer your question effectively because I suspect <laughs> the next one's just gonna be another mad, just, oh God, I've got five minutes, let's do some writing kind of uh, actually, that, that technique I did I did you have used that actually also it is good and not in so much detail as you but certainly just in terms of putting on you know a 25 minute uh, alarm on my on my phone and, and I rise and it, it's just a really good thing to stop you sort of wandering off down to research wormholes or checking mm. your social media mm. I do think for me anyway the, the wi-fi is the biggest is the biggest problem and I keep trying to block it but then it's sort of but then it's on my phone and I think well I have to have my phone on in case somebody needs me <laughs> it's quite mm-hmm. um so yeah it's and, and you know of course it's designed to be addictive and it's very effective well, it's totally, it coach, totally is, is yeah if my new coach is able to come up with any solutions for me I, I shall pass them straight on Eve started yeah. a WhatsApp <laughs> group for um a few author friends during lockdown called the author gin bowl and we, we we all checked in quite a bit, particularly in, in in the first early lockdown, just about how utterly horrific it was trying to write books whilst we were stuck in our houses with children. It um, was hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't feel like I've recovered creatively. No. I, will we ever either? Are things just different? We have to find a new path forward in a lot of ways. Mm. I want to take our listeners and our, our viewers into your book. Rosie, can you tell us what is the fossil for this book, the the impetus for writing it, the kernel that came to you, um, and a little bit about it? Because we got a little bit about Eve's, but our, our readers don't know exactly what The Love of My Life is about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I gladly talk about Eve's book all night. It's, it's just, it's just <laughs> all, everything she writes. I'm just such a huge fan. It's such a beautiful book. Um, I hadn't even thought about mine before coming on. Um, so, well, I'll just quickly give a synopsis of the story. It's um, 
It's about a couple, Emma and Leo, who who seem ostensibly to be really happy and successful. You know, she's a, a well-regarded marine biologist. Um, he writes obituaries for a broadsheet newspaper in London. They've got a lovely daughter, a funny dog called John Keats. Um, and they, you know, they live, <laughs> I in love that. <laughs> they live in Hampstead Village. You know, every, everything seems to be going well, but actually when we meet them, um, Emma's waiting to find out if her cancer treatment has worked. And Leo is dealing with his terror the way that he knows best, which is to just start writing her obituary. Because of course, most obituaries are written before the person dies. And um, yeah, in the course of basic fact-checking, Leo discovers that Emma's not who she says she is. They've been married for years. They've been together for more than 10 years. So um, the, the novel sort of charts his descent into hell as he uncovers more and more about his wife and discovers that her name isn't even Emma. <laughs> Um, and, you know, that we, we do eventually find out, just to reassure anyone. <laughs> um, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a pretty tragic tale. Um, so where does this come from? Oh, go on. Yeah. I was going to say, but it's so full of love and warmth as well. And, I, I, you know, just that portrait of a marriage and the, the tender moments within it are just really beautifully, beautifully done. And quite, it's really rare to see that on the page, that, sort of mix of that sort of I don't know it's that young they've got a young child and yet they're obviously still in love I can't be careful about what I say because I give away a spoiler <laughs> but um yeah it's beautifully done um and yeah where where did it come from where did you get the idea yeah so it came out of a really awkward dinner party <laughs> nearly 10 years <laughs> That's ago awesome. my partner and I had just moved uh to a new town and we um <laughs> We went on a sort of friend date with with another couple and it just the conversation did not flow there was no chemistry um and but with, there was a brief moment of respite where the guy in this couple was telling us about um a poet whose um obituary he was writing he was a poet himself mm -hmm. and he was writing a obituary of his sort of poet hero i guess and um I was just absolutely fascinated because he was in contact with this man. And I just kept asking, like, does he, does he, does he know that you're writing it? Like, is he sort of putting on his best self when you talk? Like, when you email, uh, his emails sort of veering towards <laughs> self curation. This is so fascinating. Uh, so I made a note under the table in my phone, you know, obituary writer, um, and I then spent a very long time. I mean, years. Um, trying to work out what the story was and in that time my agent nearly sacked me she was just so horrified by the ideas that I was coming up with although they all involve somebody called John Keats um whether it's a dog <laughs> or a human um so John was always there he's part of the colonel um and yeah I I don't know how it came to me but I just eventually had a sentence obituary writer starts researching his wife's life and discovers she's not who she says she is and from mm. that point it's like Eve said then I was off. Um, but mm. the process to get to that point was surprisingly painful. Um, and I, I couldn't I couldn't nail it. So that's part of why I came up with the idea for Ghosted, because I needed a book idea quite quickly. Mm. And uh, so I wrote Ghosted whilst I was still trying to figure this one out. Not a bad plan B, it turned out. I mean, it How was amazing. not a bad plan B. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a life changing plan B. Thank God, for plan, thank God for my terrible plan A's. <laughs> well, plan A ended up being a wonderful plan. And indeed, it's so beautiful. And you're so right, Eve. It, it's written with such tenderness and such love for these characters. I, I wondered, like, are these characters based on people in your life? Like, how did you write them with such tenderness? And it felt like empathy to me. Um. No, I never base characters on real people. For me, it's just a very long form process of layering. Mm. Um, and I mean, for fiction writers, you know, we, we kind of, we have to start with plot really. We can't, we can't start with character. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be pretty wrong, but you know, I've, I've yet to meet anyone who starts with character. But with this one, I had an unusual experience in that Emma was, Emma came to me fully formed very early on. So I knew her from the mm. beginning. I knew what she looked like. I knew what she sounded like. Um, I, I could have described her very clearly. Uh, Leo took longer. I mean, all of them took longer. They all do. And, and really, as I'm, 
as I'm, as I'm sure you both know, really it's not until the final edit has left your desk that that character is fully formed and, and ready to walk out of the, the pages and into, into the world. Um, and I think, you know, the tenderness of their, of their sort of love story was deliberate because um, I don't want readers to just sort of give up on them as soon as they discover mm. that there's something very <laughs> rotten in the state of Denmark. You know, I, I you know, I, I don't want it to be a, oh God, oh no, oh, they've deceived each other. Oh, well, pfft. you know, I, mm -hmm. I want it to be really difficult. I, you know, as for the reader, like, what do I do with this? They're so beautiful together and yet. Uh, yeah. So that, that was deliberate and that took a lot of editing and thinking and plotting and replotting as these things always do. Yeah, I mean, the stakes have to be high for that relationship, and they are, aren't they? And that's the, you want it. You want him to not find out to, to, to the things that he finds out. Um, and, yeah, I think I said to you when I first read it, it has all the feels, that book. It's like, well, mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> takes you on a little yeah. emotional yeah. roller coaster. Well, so does yours. And yet what I love about yours is that it takes us on an emotional roller coaster, and it, it, there, even in the darkest moments, you can still make me laugh. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to Absolutely. hear that. <laughs> mm -hmm. What about you? What was what, where did the idea come from for the birdcage? Well, actually, well, you know what, my my idea is always I, I find it really hard to to unravel them after after the event because they all sort of knot together. But I have I did have the uh, the three I did want to write about three I wanted to write about three sisters who had different mothers. So I thought it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I, the idea, in a way, that siblings remember childhood differently, anyway. So you can have, a, you know, a nuclear family, and you and you'll all remember the events slightly differently or massively differently. I think, and actually having them with different mothers just it just amplifies that. So of course they they're coming they're coming to that relationship with with love, but conflict and competition and rivalry and all these things. So I thought that was interesting, and I also thought it was interesting that they, if they remembered one event that happened and that this happens in 1999, in the lead up to a total solar eclipse, and if they remembered this key event differently how you know where was the truth and and so when you're when I'm writing the when I was writing the contemporary section it's very much as Rose says it's about layering it's all it's it's about scraping back to the backstory in a way and mm. that's where the truth you know the game mm. you're always looking for the cracks in the story to let you know to let the truth come out the light come in and that and that's what I was doing through their three points of view so it, it started with the sisters and also I, I knew that I wanted to write about a painting and so the idea mm. that they would all be in the same painting and they'd be sitting for this painting in the past section, um, that became a, a real, uh, you know, really pushed the plot. Um, so I'd say sisters and art, and but that makes it sound terribly vague. And then I threw in Cornwall <laughs> as well, but it, it did all, it all sort of comes together slightly with me at the same time. Once I've got my mm. setting and my characters, I kind of know what I can do with them. Mm. One of the things about your book that I loved so much is each of the sisters, is very insecure and compares herself against the others, whether it's looking for approval from the other sister or sisters, and if, if they're as successful, as beautiful, as put together, and they see each other as so perfect. If only I could have had her, her life, perhaps, mm -hmm. then my life would be perfect. But really, they're all broken and flawed in their own way. And in the end, there's so much healing in understanding that they're not perfect. Yeah, and I think that's the whole. That for me also was the idea of the birdcage. That they were, they're all in their little cages really because they've built their own narratives over the years, partly as a sort of protection thing and partly out of insecurity and as a reaction to this traumatic event that happens in 1999. So, you know, I suppose at the end they are free, aren't they? They're they're, they're all out of their cages and they're and they're together, and that's that's the the sort of story arc of the whole book, but it's, they have to do quite a lot of work to get there and quite a few things have to happen, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And just beautiful. Uh, and in both books, you know, the beauty of the characters, that's what drives you forward. The plots are great too, because you're not sure there's a mystery to it. Something's happening, you don't know quite sure and you want to know why, but it's the characters that bring you to that final page. I agree, yeah, and I, I think. Sorry, go on, you go. No, I, I actually just um, 
wanted to read a paragraph of, of the birdcage because I was thinking about it this afternoon and I was thinking of what, what is it that I love most about Eve's books and I couldn't really pin mm. it down. It, but it's, I think it's got to be a combination of the characters who are so vivid and so human and so funny and so fragile and beautiful and um, Eve's way with words. And if, if I could just get into a bath with your language and just roll around in it, I'm so happy. And this is, but no, I, I, I'm glad that that came up because I was hoping I might have an opportunity to, to, to just to read this because this so brilliantly sums up the way that the way that you just have these rich rich busy buzzing descriptions of people and yet even with all these beautiful words you use there's just so much humanity so um <laughs> this is flora she's describing um angie who is her father's um girlfriend and sort of a very complex and not immediately lovable character <laughs> the campari red plume of hair the triumphant smile on that slack, sensual mouth, the starburst of lines around those blown out mad green eyes, the surreal cruelty of Angie, now in the pneumatic badlands of her mid forties, wearing Cuban heeled ankle boots, silver, and a leopard print fake fur, sashaying into rock point, looking like she'd spent the intervening years at a sordid party. She even moves in her own pocket of warm, sweet, musky air, that smell when you strip clean bed linen after sex. I just, <laughs> that to me just tells me everything I need to know about Eve's extraordinary <laughs> of language and cho choice of words and her ability to just nail a character without them even needing to say anything. Yeah. Yeah, I love. No, that I can't thing. say anything. That's so. That's a wonderful. Well, <clears throat> let me let me get all emotional. <laughs> I've forgotten I'd written that about Angie. Yeah, no, I, yeah, she was just a, a lively character. She is. Yeah. They all are. No, but nobody does mad English people quite like you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you both about perspective. So in the bird cage. It's third person. We have the perspective of the three sisters from the present in third person. But then when we go back to 1999, Lauren's perspective is first person. Yeah. Where, how did this I come thought, to be? I thought I'd make my life really difficult, basically. <laughs> no, I didn't deliver it. I, I wrote it like that because it felt right. Actually, and I, initially the past section was third person, and I just couldn't get the immediacy of the child. Mm. And because I really wanted to distinguish her age, I just felt that actually, I just love a child. I always, I'm always really drawn to a child's perspective and the way they mm -hmm. see the world. And there's a sort of clarity to it and a sort of absurdness to it in a way which I, and the simplicity, all those things. And so I kind of, that's why I spoke, that's why I did it in, in um, first person. And I and the sisters had to be equal in a way, so they had to have the same similar voices. But yeah, it, it was. I did sometimes kind of think, why am I making this really, you know, three points of view, then another point of view in the past? It, it was. It felt like a kind of a puzzle that I had to put together, um, and to keep in voice. And I constantly, sort of, I would read it aloud sometimes just to make sure that the dialogue wasn't slipping from one character to the next. Mm, that's hard. It's well done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Of, I did a lot of editing on those, on the dialogue, on, yeah, and the thoughts of the sisters. So they all have their own imagery as well. So they, you know, they, hopefully the language you can get, you're able to distinguish between them so that you're inside your head and each, each head. I'm always fascinated when I read a book that has the different perspectives. And in this case, three sisters who, you know, are relatively close in age, you know, how do we make them sound different and give their own personalities? And you, you did that so well. Thank yeah. you. Rosie, what Just about without you? Without having to resort to stereotype as well. Because when you're exactly three distinct personalities, you could easily just go, oh, the lunatic, the you know whatever and actually exactly they're all three they're three really distinct and very mm -hmm. complex tricky characters that mm. you haven't resorted to any sort of characterization commonplaces 
it's it's very well handled so if again if it was a struggle it doesn't show there's there's no <laughs> nail marks there's no nail marks uh, no, no, yeah. falling off the cliff <laughs> that's the beauty of a final published book we don't get to see all the pain we, it looks seamless like oh this must is, must have been so easy to write it's so perfect i can't imagine you had trouble <laughs> well there's always those there's always those lines though that i don't know if you remember them Rosie, when you're you bang down in your first draft and, and it's so satisfying seeing them there in the last and, the, and you think oh, i actually remember writing that and i loved it at the time and it's and it got through all my red pens and all the edits and everything else and um sometimes you do know you just write something, don't you? And, it, and it's still there, or it captures the. Um, mm. and I think for me, is that moment when one of the daughters, when the, the boomer father says, oh, right, I've decided, girls, I'm going to live the rest of my life exactly as I please. And they all just turn him sort of staggered and say, Who were you trying to please before? And that, <laughs> for me, was that moment when it was just the sort of generational clash. And, um, and that sets them off, basically, in that section. What about do you Rose? Do you do you remember stuff that you wrote in your first draft, Rose? Do you have clear memories of writing particular lines? Yeah, I do, and it'd be really interesting to work out one day, like what percentage of your first draft yeah. makes it to mm. your to your final draft. And it's it's always a tricky one because with with that sort of thing, because when you when you write, and it's normally imagery for me, when you write something that you're like, wow, that's just spot on, it's beautiful. And then you're ready to just refuse yeah. it to let to let it go, and you kind of set it the first time, and then set it the second time. Uh, that which is um, for people who uh, aren't familiar with the word, it means basically keep it, keep it, leave it as is, please. Keep it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the third time round, they're still attacking it. You end up writing a note in the margin and saying, "No, I I want to keep it. This makes sense." And then they'll come back again saying, "No, it still doesn't work." So uh, with a couple of those, actually. I've just gone, oh God, you know what, I'll have it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep it in my in my American edition or my British edition, depending on which editor is 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 objecting to it. <laughs> those are the those are the ones when it's like your your the sort of Rolls Royce of your of your imagery for that novel. <laughs> it's the one mm -hmm. that your editor hates most. Oh god, no, oh, god. <laughs> I wanted to ask you both, because I forget who, but one of you, the same editor, you're the same editor for the American version and the British version. Is that right? Or did you, did you have two editors? Okay. So talk uh, to me about that process. Go ahead. So, sorry. Yeah. So I have an, uh, I have an editor in London and an editor in New York and they're both within Penguin London House. How different was the process, you know, cutting, and how does that work? So you create the British version and then you edit it again for the American version? Well, I think it, it, go... varies. it varies for, for different authors. Certainly for me, I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky that I've got, I work with both my editors at the same time and mm. they, they're they really happy working together and they bring different things to the table and they're brilliant actually. Awesome. And I have to say, when I cling on to my certain words and I like Rosie, I, I hold out, I hold out. And then I just like, Oh God, they're right. <laughs> yeah. then, you know, they're pretty much always right. So I'm really, yeah, I'm. It, I do have them both coming in at the, at the same time, which really is helpful. How about you, Rosie? Um, yeah, that. Well, it's been slightly different, just in terms of when the deals have been struck for my books. So, um, like with this one, the love of my life, my two editors did did do a lot of stuff at the same time, but I. I just think it's a really difficult thing because they're not the same person, you know, and they're both distinct editors with their own distinct ideas and styles and and beliefs and experience. So, no, you know, I hugely appreciate their collaboration and, you know, they've worked together on many, you know, on so many different aspects of the production and sort of editorial development of this novel, but they are still two people and you will still get times when the manuscript has a note from one saying this is beautiful and the other one saying this makes no sense i've decided after, well, after, after polling i think actually some of the writers in our uh, authors gin bar whatsapp group i decided to just um do my own thing if that happened and just listen to my gut mm -hmm. And, and actually, do, like, right? like, like Eve says, you know, they, they are almost always right. And my writing partner sometimes says, I can't, I can't bear how much you just 
agree to do and just sort of almost like roll over and acquiesce to. But I just think, you know, these women between them have published hundreds of novels. Yeah. I've written six. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always, I, I think it's always worth turning off track changes after I grudgingly, sometimes furiously <laughs> made that change. <laughs> Turning off track, uh, well, turning off the the markup, and then just reading it, and it's it's undeniable. But funnily enough, when you turn the markup back on and you can see what you've lost, it's like no, 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 I need to leave it as was. <laughs> turn it off again. It's oh god, no, it's gone. I don't, I don't need it. Yeah. They were right again. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. It's annoying, but it is awesome. <laughs> well, and it does result in a better book, you know, because we are, are outstanding so editors. close. Yeah. You're so close to your story, you know, it means something different to you than it will to the reader. And ultimately, you know, the, the reader adds to the story too. We take it and we envision it in a different way than you do. Um, you have to let it out into the world, let it become what it's going to become in everyone's individual collective brains, right? Yeah. I know Julie's going to join us. So we're just about out of time. And I'm really sad because I think both of you are just amazing, brilliant, lovely. I, I loved both of these books and I'm so honored that I got to talk to you both. Oh, love them. Love I just want to ask one question. I learned about something that I'd never heard of and had to figure out. Um, tell us a little bit about wellies. <laughs> both of you are like, wait, what? Wellies, wellies in the book. Yeah, the, both of you Imagine talk about wellies, <laughs> the boots, the, 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 the snow boots, boots or the, the rain boots. boots or the muck boots. What do you call them? The boots. What do you call rubber, you know, what do you call them? rubber boots? muck boots I grew up calling them muck boots and I'm like what the hell is a welly <laughs> but the funny thing is both of you the wellies appear in both stories quite a bit which obviously you know, it's you, very British it's, and it's, it's the weather you can't go to yeah. Cornwall that wellies yeah. doesn't matter if you go in the summer or in the middle of the winter I mean you yeah. might you know you might chance it with a pair of hiking boots in the summer but if you want to if you're outside all the time yeah, <laughs> they were very all, important wellies, wellies do feature Although not in the last couple of days during the heat wave. It's like, I can't imagine ever wearing weddings again. No. <laughs> I can't imagine wearing clothes again. I mean, I've pretty much got dressed for this event. I think when the wellies make their first appearance in my novel in Cornwall too, an early scene is in Cornwall. I think that's the first sighting of a wellie that we see. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Okay. And I loved that. Wellies are a character in the book now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe I'll have a dog called Wellie next. Ooh. I like that. <laughs> Great conversation. Jennifer, thank you. Um, quick, thank you. just real quick. And Eve, thank you. And Rosie, thank you too. We're not quite ready to, because I have some questions. You guys were cracking me up though about Eve, especially when you talked about the house being the same as the grandmothers. And when my children are 30 and 29, 31 and 29, and they come home and they go, this place is like a museum. It hasn't changed into yeah. your kids. And I'm like, oh my God, am I at that? <laughs> <laughs> well you know but the thing is it was, it's all of us I was thinking exactly that the other night I was thinking I have all my little things that I collect you know I really like collecting sort of odd odds you know odd eccentric little things and I think my children are just gonna you know when I die I'll be like darlings it's all for you they're gonna look at it and think, oh god oh, no. my, kids, gonna, my, gonna my take, kids have flat yeah. out told me we don't want any of this I mean they have been yeah. like that brutal they're just like <laughs> we don't want any of it so <laughs> unkind <laughs> they'll change their minds i guarantee I they'll change their i don't minds. know it's like oh my god the attic i don't know anyways but and i also because i'm in the background listening the whole time and i, I still want to like pop in and like throw my comments in too because when you talk about how when you talked about how the siblings see things so differently the same event and it's that that mm -hmm. is i just think a universe it's it's so true and it rings so true in this book and in life and in everything it's just like same event three different yeah. three different complete different interpretations of what's happening yeah. yeah yeah so it's so crazy eve i loved this book i thought it was so did you know I, this it can't be a spoiler because i know but did you know was the secret from the very beginning the secret yeah okay i did oh okay. yeah okay that's a good question yeah because it was just one of those things. And when you have everybody's got to read it to know what the secret is. And I, think, That's oh, right. I, knew, what, I knew what the I knew what the secret was, but I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to reveal it. So okay. actually I, so I, yeah, it took me to the end of the book to really know exactly the way it should be revealed. 
Okay. Which won't mean anything to anyone. <laughs> right. to anyone. But, no, but I love that though. But then they can come back and they go, ah, now we know what she was talking about. <laughs> I, think, I don't know if you, if you agree, Rosie, but so much writing fiction is about how you reveal things, isn't it? It's how you, what you hold back all the time. What, how do you reveal the secret? And so you're constantly playing this, mm. this game of, uh, of the missing information and letting little bits through and it's, it, but it can't come, but it can't come, but it can't come completely out of the blue though. It has no, to, it has to have a thread somewhere. But then you have mm -hmm. to spend all of your time measuring the size of your breadcrumb. Like, yes, exactly. Is that, is that well too said. big? Do I need to make it a bit smaller? But is it big enough that it's yeah. measuring yeah. breadcrumbs is another thing we spend a lot of time doing. So great, though. Well, again, Eve, congratulations. The book just released yesterday, The Birdcage. So the and both of your books and and Rosie, like um, Jennifer said, the covers spot on covers. Yeah. Both. And I'm a cover. It's just like, I'm sorry, a book is judged by its cover. And it's. <laughs> You're walking, you know, it's, it's the discovery thing. People are walking through a bookstore and it's got to grab you. So they both did a great job on these. Thank you, ladies. Congratulations on everything. Hopefully one of these years, um, when we're out of this pandemic, you both will make it in to person. Southern California and we will see you in person. Hopefully if not, oh, love that. Enjoy we'll do this again. Thank you. Good night, everyone. everybody. Great. Thank you. Bye. Hey folks, this is Jennifer, and as you know, The Premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers' Festival, which, by the way, is happening this October, October 8th, in fact, 2022. It's going Live to be, and in person. Yeah, live and in person. I'm really, really excited. We, um, we have so many exciting things happening, so many exciting speakers. They're coming in from all over, and we want you to be there. So Coronado Public Library, the fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival. San Diego Writers Festival.com. You can subscribe to learn more about our programming and get on the list to win free books and all kinds of cool stuff happening. So San sure. Diego Writers Festival.com. <laughs>